so much. I am so delighted to be with you here in Litchfield, Illinois. This is my first time in uh, this place, and uh, it's good to meet you and to see this church and to see what God is doing here. Uh, during this weekend, we've been thinking about uh, Christian parenting, and it, how beautiful to see this uh, baby dedication this morning. And uh, yesterday we had a parenting seminar where we were taking uh, the passages that Pastor Tim read this morning and using those to uh, equip and help parents to be what God is calling them to be. I'm going to continue that topic uh, in a slightly different way this morning. Uh, I'm going to ask a, a difficult question. How does... How does the doctrine of the Trinity connect with parenting? Uh, the teaching that God is a Trinity, one God in three persons creates huge problems for us as Christians. First, we find it difficult to understand ourselves. Secondly, it is hard to present when we explain our faith to other people. We are accused by Jews and Muslims of believing in three gods, which is an abomination to them. Even among ourselves, we find the doctrine a kind of hurdle in logic or a mathematical puzzle that we have to overcome to be orthodox, but not something which is practically related to our daily lives. So here's the question. Does the fact that God is triune really affect your daily life? Does it affect your parenting? And uh, we're going to turn to two passages of Scripture, Exodus 33 and Psalm 86. Uh, I, I borrowed this Holman Christian Standard Bible from your pew, and I will read, I will read, uh, I'm going to read from Exodus 33, down to 34, uh, verse, verse 7. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses, Go leave here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. <coughs> I will send an angel or a messenger ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but, here's the but, I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. You're stubborn. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses took a tent and set it up outside the camp, 
far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow down in worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, please teach me your ways. Or we could actually, uh, there are, there's a strong uh, tradition in the history of the text that has that word in the singular. Teach me your way, show me your way, and I will know you and find favor in your sight. Now consider that this nation is your people. Then he replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he answered, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice, or the crack of the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one must be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones, he got up early in the morning, and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. 
The Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the third, on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. I also want to read from Psalm 86. Many people have written commentaries on the Bible, but what many, what a number of Christians do not realize is that some of the oldest commentaries on the Bible are in the Bible. And uh, Psalm 86 is a commentary on the passage that I've read, and you'll be able to tell that because when you look at verse 5, and look later on down in verse 15, you will see that David is quoting uh, Exodus 34. <coughs> so in this psalm, David is in real trouble. Somebody is trying to kill him, and he's praying for God to deliver him. Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant's life, since I set my hope on you, Lord. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abundant in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my plea for mercy. I call on you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods. There are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and, down and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. For you alone are great, for you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord. Exactly what Moses prayed, isn't it? and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. I will praise you with all my heart, Lord my God, and will honor your name forever. Your faithful love for me is great, and you deliver my life from the depths of Sheol. God, arrogant men, arrogant people have attacked me. A gang of ruthless men see, seeks my life. They have no regard for you, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in faithful love and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your female servant. Show me a sign of your goodness. My enemies will see it and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let's quickly pray together. Father, we thank you that you uh, are the God who has spoken. You have not left us in the dark. 
You have not left us without uh, instructing us, without showing us the way. And this morning, as we read your word, as we study your word, we ask that you will give us understanding and show us how to apply this to our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus 34 is a... We're going to, as we look at Exodus 34, we're going to see the glory of God. The glory of God is who he is and what his ways are in the world. Exodus 34 is a key passage in biblical theology, but the glory of the Lord revealed to Moses is not understood very well by the Christian church, at least in North America. And so I am going to try and briefly explain the glory of the Lord that was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, and later on taken up in profound reflection in the prayer of David in Psalm 86. First, we must briefly review the story that leads up to the revelation of the divine glory in Exodus 34. In Exodus 1, chapter 1 to 18, we see how, how an enslaved Israel is released from Egypt and they travel through the desert towards Canaan, the promised land. At Mount Sinai, Yahweh and Israel are bound together by a covenant which is specified in chapters 19 to 23. It's the same kind of covenant that happens when two people get married. So Yahweh and Israel get married, as it were, and this covenant is described in chapters 19 to 23 and ratified in chapter 24. Afterwards, Moses ascends the mountain to receive further instructions concerning the building of a place of worship. When Moses is gone for a long time, the people urge Aaron to make alternative arrangements, which leads to the golden calf and the orgiastic worship associated with it. God urges Moses to hurry down the mountain and deal with the problem, and this is described in Exodus 32. Moses descends the mountain, and in anger, he breaks the covenant documents. He breaks the marriage certificate. He burns them and grinds them up and scatters the powder in the drinking water. He remonstrates with the people and calls for discipline. The tribe of Levi answers the call, and many offenders are put to death. Next, Moses meets with Yahweh and seeks to atone for the people by exchanging his place in the book of life with them. So God, Moses says, wipe my name out of the book of life and be merciful to your people. But God asks him to lead the people of Israel to Canaan and promises his messenger as well as disciplining actions. But he says that he himself will not journey to Canaan in the midst of his people. God will not go with them. The people are not at all happy with this result, and they mourn. An interlude 
is provided in chapter 33, verses 7 to 11, where we see a description of the tent of meeting. We, see, we are told that this is a tent outside the camp where Yahweh and Moses conversed on a regular basis, just as humans speak face to face. Seems to have been a kind of precursor to the tabernacle in some ways. The experience at the tent of meeting is both a contrast to the absence of God promised for the rest of the trip in the previous paragraph, as well as the greater intimacy desired by Moses in his grand request to see God's glory in the next paragraph. After the interlude, Moses again goes to intercede on behalf of Israel for the problem situation. He does not want to lead the people to Canaan without Yahweh, without God himself personally going with them and leading them. The divine presence is absolutely essential. And so we see that, we read verses 12, uh, uh, let's see if it's on the next slide. Uh, as we read that section, as we read that section, notice, notice these, uh, in particular, these words. In verse 13, show me your way, show me your way. Uh, this is not a class in textual criticism or the history of the transmission of the text, so you'll just have to trust me on that one. I think the singular is a better reading than the plural. The consonantal Hebrew text actually has the singular. Teach me your way. Then, uh, later on, down in verse 18, he says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and proclaim my name. He says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And then finally in verse 21, uh, and 20, finally in verse 22, he says, when my glory passes by. One, I want you to see a pattern there. First of all, in verse 13, he says, show me your way. And notice how we have the word glory in verse 18 and the word glory in verse 22. Do you see that? These are like the bookends of the section. And in the middle, we have the goodness of God and the name of God. And so what I would suggest is that the glory of God is explained by the goodness of God and the name of God. And what I would also suggest is that when, in verse 13, when he says, show me your way, that way is a synonym for his goodness. So that we can say that the glory of God is shown in two ways. It's shown in the way of God, and it's shown in the name of God. As we're going to see in a moment or two, the name of God describes who God is in himself, who God is in his being, and the way of God, or the goodness of God, describes how God relates to the rest of the world, 
how God treats his creation, how he deals with you and me. And that is described by his way or by his goodness. So the, the first round of conversation between Yahweh and Moses has left Moses entirely uneasy. Yahweh has called him to lead the people from Egypt to Canaan has an, and has indicated that he will dispatch a messenger to accompany them. The Hebrew word that is translated angel simply means messenger. He will give them a messenger, but he will not go with them in person. Moses addresses his concern for this arrangement in the second round of conversation. Moses notes that Yahweh has called him to lead the people up and has not specified whom he will send as a messenger. He argues that he has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and Yahweh has known him by name. On this basis, he would like to know the way of Yahweh. If Yahweh will reveal his approach to these matters, he can know Yahweh in return and find favor in his eyes. He reminds Yahweh that the nation of Israel belongs to him by covenant and is therefore Yahweh's responsibility. We, uh, <clears throat> notice, notice in this text the phrase to find favor in someone's eyes. Someone's eyes. Moses says, I have found favor in your eyes. There are there are 69 occurrences of the word favor in the Old Testament. Of these 69 instances, 40, that is almost 60%, occur in the phrase to find favor in someone's eyes. Furthermore, of these 40 occurrences, 26 have to do with favor in the eyes of humans, and 14 have to do with favor in the eyes of God. Of all, again, of all of these instances having to do with favor in the eyes of God, six, almost half, are found in this passage right here. While another two occur in Numbers 11, another passage dealing with the favor of Moses before God. Normally, the person who is given favor is making a request to someone who is higher than them, socially superior, who, or who has, in a particular circumstance, complete power over them in the matter they see. So, more than half of all of the occurrences in the Bible where a person is talking about favor in the eyes of God have to do with Moses and the situation that we're talking about right here. Very interesting. This phrase is found not only in the Bible, but outside the Bible. Uh, for example, we have inscriptions from northern Syria, where uh, the same expression is used and help us to understand uh, what is going on in this passage. As Moses bargains with Yahweh, Yahweh gives in to his request and states, my face, uh, our, our, our English translation says, my presence, will go with you. The Hebrew text actually says, my face will go with you and I will give you rest. Here the word face is a figure of speech where you mention the part for the whole. So for example, uh, when, you're on, when Captain Courageous is on his ship 
He says, all hands on deck. Or presumably he wants their bodies too. But uh, it's a figure of speech where you mention the part for the whole. And so uh, here, when he says, my face will go with you, he means uh, the face is the part for the whole person. So God himself in, all, in, it, in his entire person will go with them. Yahweh will go with Israel in person. The promise of rest for Moses shows that a great burden has been lifted from his shoulders in terms of the task of leading the people amidst great enemies and difficulties of the desert to Canaan. He need be uneasy no longer. Then in verse 16, Moses asked for a sign to assure him and the people of the guarantee and promise just given him by Yahweh. How will it be known then that I and your people have found favor before you? Well, uh, Yahweh also accedes to the demand for a sign. And so we come to the bold request, show me your glory. And we've seen the structure here where glory is like the bookends and in the middle we have the, the, the name of Yahweh and the way of Yahweh. What we may conclude is by looking at this is that the glory of God can be described in two categories, the name of Yahweh and the way of Yahweh. In the Revelation, and uh, you will see how this analysis will be tested when we look at the commentary by David in Psalm 86. So you will know whether I'm on the right track. You don't have to believe Peter Gentry, you can look at the text yourself say, I know this is true. All right? In the revelation of the divine glory, Yahweh says in verse 20, you cannot see my face. He repeats this in verse 23. You will see my back, but not my face. The word, the term face here is not the same figure of speech. It's not a part for the whole, but it's a different figure of speech by means here God is comparing himself, he's comparing himself to human beings. <clears throat> he's drawing an analogy between himself and humans where the knowledge that you have of a person by looking at their face is quite different from the knowledge that you have looking at their behind. And we can uh, illustrate this what happens when identifications are made in police stations? Well, they don't look at the backside of these uh, people. They look at the they look at the frontal view, right? Because when you're looking at the face, that's how you really know people. Okay. So Yahweh is using a figure of speech to instruct Moses that as a human. He cannot have full knowledge of God, but nonetheless, he can have a true knowledge, even though it's a partial knowledge of God. He can say, I saw his back. I had a real, I, I saw God. I had an experience of God. God is knowable, but my knowledge of God is not exhaustive because all I saw was his back. 
Now we come to the revelation in chapter 34. The revelation in chapter 34. And here I want us to look for a few minutes at verses 5, uh, at verses 6, verses 5 and 6. Then Yahweh came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We'll have the next slide. This is a little bit small, uh, but uh, let me just go through it with you together. What is ne not necessarily obvious to you is when you read this revelation of who God is, there are a number of adjectives, characteristics, or qualities. And these qualities are given in pairs. They are given in pairs. And uh, the clue to this is that the name of God is given twice. Notice this in verse 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Did you hear the name pronounced twice? This is the only place in the Bible where the name is given twice. And what does it mean? What, what does it mean that he pronounces the name twice? It means two things. It means pay attention. And number two, it means that the number two is the key for interpreting this text. Everything is given in twos. And so the first pair is that God is slow to anger. That's one. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So do you see that pair there? The, sec the second pair is keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the second pair. The third pair is he will by no means clear the guilty, but he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So there are three pairs. And this is indicated by the fact that the name Yahweh is repeated twice. That's the key to interpreting this text. Now, when we look at these three pairs, we see that the first pair is a description of who God is. So I put this fancy word up here, ontology. That's a word that's used by uh, theologians. You can just ignore that. It just means who God is in himself who God is in his being. And then we have two more pairs, and these second two pairs are 
how God relates to his creation. How God relates to his creation. So he keeps steadfast love for thousands, thousands of generations. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a positive pair. And the last pair is negative. He will by no means clear the guilty, but he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we see that the first pair describes who God is. The second two pairs describes how God relates to his world. The first pair is a positive function, and this last pair is a negative function. Now, what I would like to, you to see here is that the first pair, in describing who God is, is giving us the name of Yahweh. That's the name of Yahweh. The last two pairs, in showing us how God relates to the rest of the world, is showing us the way of Yahweh. This is his way. This is how he works in all of his relationships. This is the goodness that was described in Exodus 34. So when God reveals his glory to Moses, that glory consists of the name of Yahweh and the way of Yahweh. Do you see that? It's very clear. The text is very clearly structured. You have the name of Yahweh and you have the way of Yahweh. These are the Bible. These are, these are uh, we, we, we can just forget for a moment about systematic theologians. These are the words that the Bible uses for describing God's glory. God's glory has two parts, his name and his way. Let me just take a quick moment to develop this. First of all, who is God in himself? He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Hebrew word for steadfast love or glory. Let's see, this, this translation used the word faithful love. This is the Hebrew word chesed. And then the word faithfulness or truth is the Hebrew word emeth. And uh, these two words uh, form a pair that communicate an almost a single idea, faithful, loyal love, and they're always used in covenant relationships, like a marriage, when two people stand before God and they make a vow, they make an agreement, they make a covenant, and this relationship is to be a relationship of faithful, loyal love, of chesed and emeth. A relationship that is demonstrating kind generosity and kindness and love and honesty and faithfulness and truth. So it combines 
This is what is involved in a covenant relationship. This is who God is in himself. Secondly, this is how God treats all his creatures. He, uh, <clears throat> it's a little bit cryptic here, but we see this back in Exodus chapter 20 when we have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sins to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love, showing chesed, to a thousand, it must be a thousand generations because of the parallel in the text. Not a thousand people, but a thousand generations. Here we see the goodness of God. God's unbelievable goodness. Some people think this is a terrible thing that God punishes the children for the father's sins to the third and fourth generation. But I want you to notice two things. God shows love to a thousand generations. So we see here the heart of God. God is not desiring to punish. He's desiring to show love and kindness And what happened when the people broke the covenant? What happened when the people broke the covenant? Well, God did bring judgment, and an entire generation was put to death in the wilderness. But did you notice that God did not take that to the third and fourth generation? He only wiped out one generation. So in the story itself, we see that God is gracious and kind. He has standards. He expects those standards to be upheld. And when people disobey him, this brings chaos into our lives. And the decisions that you make are significant. So for example, if you're a father, and you make decisions that are bad decisions in life, God is not automatically going to fix up all of those bad decisions for your children or for your grandchildren. That's what this text means. God is going to allow the choices that you make to be significant. But God is not interested in punishing people. He wants to show kindness to a thousand generations. So here we see the name of God and the way of God. Notice the expressions that are used in the text in chapter 34. When it's talking about how he treats other people, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
That means a thousand generations, so the Holman Standard Bible has correctly interpreted that. Forgiving, he's maintaining. Look at what it says here in the Holman Standard Bible. Maintaining faithful love. Guarding, the Hebrew word is guarding faithful love, preserving faithful love. Normally, the Bible just talks about doing faithful love, but this is a much stronger expression. God is guarding it, he's preserving it. We see that God's love issues in a comprehensive forgiveness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But this forgiveness nonetheless takes sin very seriously because the next section says he will by no means clear the guilty. There's a tension in the plot structure of the Bible here. This is, this is even more tense than the Hunger Games. Because it's gonna take it's gonna take two thousand years before we figure out how this tension works out. How can God, how can God forgive sin and at the same time hold true to his standards? We do not see the answer until we come to Jesus Christ. So this is this book is heavy with plot structure, heavy with tensions. It keeps you on the edge of your chair for thousands of years. Now imagine, imagine, this is what it means to see God's back. Imagine what it's like to see his face. If this is what God's back is like, imagine what it's like to look on his face. Well, let's quickly go to Psalm 86 and conclude. Uh, we go to Psalm 86. Uh, Psalm 86 is divided, is, is like a, a hymn in your hymn books that you don't sing anymore and you don't have anymore. But I, I hope you remember what a hymn is. It usually has, uh, it usually has stanzas. So let's, uh, this is, uh, Stanza one is divided into three parts. I guess then on the next slide, what do we have? Stanza two is divided into two parts. And then the last stanza is, uh, has two parts. And uh, what's interesting about this hymn is that it's arranged in concentric circles. So the first section matches the seventh section. The second section matches the sixth section. The third section matches the fifth section. So for example, the, if you look at your text, you'll see that the third section ha has the allusion to Exodus 34, and the fifth section actually quotes verse 30, uh, ch chapter 34. So that means, if we can go back to the previous slide, not no, there we go. If that means, if we go back to the uh, to this slide, we, there we are. That the fourth section, verses eight to ten, this stanza is at the heart of the poem. And one of the interesting things 
that we see is that in every other part of the poem, the psalmist is, is, is making requests, and it's all about I and me. And at the center of this psalm, there's no I and there's no me. It's only you. It's only God. This is how we should pray. And I want you to notice in here, I'm going to read these verses now. Psalm 86. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods. There are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name, for you alone are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. If you were listening carefully, you would have seen that you would, see, you would see name, name, way, name. So the name is at the beginning, at the end, and in the middle is, is the way of God and the name of God, which is exactly the same order that it's in in Exodus 33. So what am I trying to show here? I'm trying to show that David has exactly the same interpretation of Exodus 34 that I do, or to put it in a better way, I have the same interpretation that David has, that the glory of God, the glory of God consists in his name and in his way. Do you see that? David is, is, is talking here about the glory of God. You see at the beginning of this stanza, the glory of, he says, glorify your name, at the end of the stanza, he says, glorify your name. So he's talking about the glory of God, and the glory of God consists in the name of God and in the way of God. Now I'm going to conclude and try to show you how this relates to, uh, to uh, the Trinity and to parenting very quickly. What... Moses, when Yahweh made his name known to God, made, sorry, when Yahweh revealed his glory to Moses, he revealed his name and he revealed his way. And the name of God is that God is slow to anger, but abounding in faithfulness and loyal love. In other words, God is love. Now here's a question for you. How can you say God is love? Um, because love always happens in a relationship between two persons, right? You, it, you remember that song, I'm just too good to be true, I can't take my eyes off of me, I'm just like heaven to touch, I want to hold me so much. Love, love just doesn't work when there's only one person. It, all, it works when there are two people, two persons. And that's what the New Testament teaches us. Within the being of the one God, we can talk about a father who loves a son, and a son who is obedient to the father, and they show each other 
faithfulness and loyal love. Do you see that? In the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So it takes another 2,000 years to understand this revelation that God gave to Moses. How can we say that in the being of God, he's, a, he's, a, he's slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and loyal love? This can only happen when we can distinguish within the being of God different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I propose to you in conclusion that this Christian God is the only way to understand who we are and come to live a truly human life. For a long time in the Western world, there has been a tendency to treat the Christian doctrine of the Trinity as a problem, rather than as encapsulating the heart of the Christian gospel. A recent writer put it this way, it is as if one had to establish one's Christian orthodoxy by facing a series of mathematical and logical difficulties, rather than by glorying in the being of a, a God whose reality as a communion of persons is the basis of a rational universe in which personal life may take shape. You see the situation? Our problems arise because we start with ourselves and we try to understand who God is. And we should start the other way around. We should start with what the Bible says about God and only then are we going to understand ourselves. If we start with ourselves, we're going to end up by saying that this teaching is illogical or puzzling. If we start with, if we begin with this teaching, we can understand God and ourselves and the world in which we live. Let me illustrate in the area of parenting. Only the Christian God explains communication, love, and personality. For a moment, we'll talk about love in a human family. How can a child understand love if the definition of love is based entirely and totally upon the relationship of the child to the parent and the parent to the child. This is a very insecure and unstable basis for love because the child knows that he or she may disappoint or fail father or mother. And when that happens, the love is imperfect. If, however, love is defined in a relationship outside the child-parent relationship, in the love of husband and wife, then the child knows that the world of love won't fall apart when they disobey dad or mom. They know that there's a love outside of their relationship to the parent that will hold true even when their love for the parent does not hold true. This is an illustration of our relationship to God. If love depends on our relationship to God and His to us, then this love is not perfect. Because all of us know of the imperfection of our love for God. And we know that we have failed Him. But love is found within the being of God. Because there are personal distinctions within God himself, 
the eternal love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, we have a basis for love independent of our relationship to God. You see that? The Muslim has 99 names for God, but love is not one of them. You can only say God is love when your God is a trinity. Only the Christian faith has a basis for love in human relationships because love is based in God himself independent, independently of our relationship to him. What a foundation for our daily lives. And what a foundation for Christian families and Christian homes. For parents to model that for their children. So their children will know that the love, the world of love won't fall apart because of the firmness and of the love that dad and mom have for each other. And this in itself is founded in the fact that within the being of God, there's an eternal love of the Father for the Son. So that even when we disappoint and disobey God, the definition of love won't fall apart. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that it gives very clear teaching. That we see that the glory of God consists of his name and of his way. This tells us who God is and how he relates to others. God is a God who uh, is love and there's faithfulness and loyal love within the being of God. And that's how he wants to relate to us. He wants to have this kind of relationship. He wants, he wants this relationship between husband and wife. He wants this relationship in our families. We pray that this will come to pass and that children may grow up in a foundation of love. In Jesus' name.